0: The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Maybe you've heard this expression before, ready to get into God's Word. Everybody's ready? All right, maybe you've heard this before, Uh, work uh, work smarter, not harder, work smarter, not harder. And uh, it's a good thing to work hard, for sure, uh, but we uh, know that it's a wise thing, that's a really important word here today, wise, wisdom, it's a wise thing uh, to maximize your work through efficiencies. And in Exodus 18 today, we have Moses working hard for the Lord. No question about that. Uh, Pouring his life into it and giving himself to the task of leading God's people in a real effective way as best he knew how. Uh, But in fact, uh, the hard work that he was uh, doing was not in a very wise way. It was actually kind of foolish what he was doing, but he just flat out didn't see that. Uh, But his father-in-law came along, Jethro, and he said to him, Uh, What you are doing, what you are doing is not good. And in his counsel to Moses, we really have a a primer. We have a primer on living by the wisdom of God, and I'm uh, fairly certain that all of us could use some wisdom this morning. How many people, right now you just raise your hands, I could use some wisdom, okay? Let's let's vote on a few things here, Um, survey time. How many would say, by raising of hands, how many people would say, I need some wisdom for my marriage? You just raise your hand. How many, how many single people would say, eventually I'm going to need that? Just raise your hand. Yeah, For sure. Um, the married people know for sure you need it. Um, how many people would just say, uh, for parenting, parenting, I need some wisdom. Uh, grandparenting, you don't need wisdom. You just need candy. <laughs> Money, that's all you need for grandparenting. But for parenting, you need wisdom. How many people, um, Christmas is coming, you're going to be tempted to spend too much. I need some wisdom on finances. Yeah? You need that? Okay. I think we're on the right track here today. Um, Wisdom on how to handle, okay, we've been watching world events. And by the way, world events are all local events now. Have you ever noticed that? World events, no matter where they happen in the world, are local events. And how many people just say, I just need some wisdom on how to sort out what's going on in Syria and the Middle East and the refugee thing, and should we or shouldn't we, and I need some wisdom for that, and wisdom on how to share the message of Christ with people. Everybody's different, and how do I share it with this person versus this person, and how to relate to the unbelieving world around us. We need wisdom for all of these things, don't we? So I think this is the right message for us today, and that's the question that we have uh, coming out of the text, how do I live by the wisdom of God? So let's uh, pray together and set this time before the Lord. Uh, Father, uh, your word says uh, very clearly in the book of James that if any of us lacks wisdom, we should simply ask you for it, and you'll give it to us generously and without reproach. And so, God, we're here asking Show us through uh, this text today how to live wisely according to your will and according to your ways. God, I would pray that you would melt our hearts and fill us with good things from you. And God, we would thank you for loving us so much that you reached out to us and sent us your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. If you agree with that prayer, just say amen. All right, let's see this. How do I live by the wisdom of God? Let's see this first. A uh, Wisdom's foundation, that's a good place to start. Uh, do I have a heart uh, for the things of Christ? Let me read the first 12 verses now of Exodus 18. Uh, Jethro the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, Jethro, Moses' father in law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in the foreign land. And the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father in law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses father-in-law uh, before God now Moses and his uh, his midianite family are happily reunited in this uh, moment The first eight verses, uh, Moses spends time with his father-in-law. Especially this very patriarchal society, they go off into a tent, and 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 uh, he's now going to tell him the whole story of everything that happened from the moment they departed, from the moment Moses left his wife and his sons with his father-in-law, went off into Egypt. He's going to tell him now everything that has actually happened of the deliverance from Egyptian slavery. I'm sure that no detail was left out, telling both, uh, verse 8 tells us of the difficulties that they faced. Not just making it all the highlights and all the best things that happened, but talking about the deliveries, uh, the difficulties, uh, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and the deliverances that God brought, again in verse 8. And Jethro was so taken with all of what he heard, verse 9 tells us, that Jethro rejoiced For all the good the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And and he calls out in this moment of worship, blessed be the Lord, verse 10. Now at this point, really it's all just observation. Jethro is just acknowledging all the great things that have happened. And he's, he's uh, praising because of the great deliverance that's happened. But it's not necessarily, at least at this point, it's not yet a personal thing really for him. But it actually becomes that when he expresses in verse 11 actual faith, personal faith in Yahweh. Notice what he says. Now, now I know, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. But he would be recalling at this moment that when Moses went off, Moses had been to the same mountain, to Sinai, had met with the Lord. The Lord had given him this commission and told him what he was going to do, that he was going to rescue the children of Israel, bring a whole nation out of Egypt. That Moses would have gone down for sure and told his father-in-law, this is what God has given me to do. And you have to wonder at this point, The fantastic story that he's telling of meeting with God of the burning bush, of of this almost impossible, for sure impossible task of taking a whole nation of slaves out of the land of Egypt, which was the superpower of the day, that Jethro had to be wondering at this moment, did I let my daughter marry a dope? What is this thing that he thinks he's going to do in this encounter that he thinks he had on the mountain? He didn't necessarily believe. He had his own set of beliefs. He didn't know what his son-in-law was all about. And off he goes into Egypt and he accomplishes everything that was prophesied. You have to believe that he was thinking about it the whole time that Moses was gone. And seeing... The people of Israel, Israel, literally there at the base of the mountain, literally there in the Sinai. With his own eyes, he's looking at this nation of people. There with his son-in-law, and he's hearing the stories of how it happened. And in that moment, he says, now, now I know. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. In verse 12, he offers a burnt offering uh, to the Lord the best expression he knew how to express his love for God. And then he was welcomed in. Aaron comes, the other leader of the children of Israel with all the elders and and they all come and they invite Jethro to come in to sit down at a meal symbolic of the inclusion into the body of believers of Israel. This is a public indication in every way that in this moment jethro moses father-in-law is converted he believes this is his moment of coming to faith in yahweh this is where jethro is saved and that's critical for the rest of the passage because as we talk about wisdom this is jethro's moment of wisdom This is Jethro being presented with all of the data and all of the facts and look at what happened and and will you trust the God who did all of this? Will you commit your life to follow this God? And so the wisest thing that happens in this passage, by far, the most important moment is this moment right here. Now earlier, Roger already prayed for those who might be here who who don't know Christ. And I would just like to appeal to you. Based on what you've seen already and on on the preaching of God's word and on, on the worship that you've seen and knowing what you know of the people in the room and the love they have for one another and what God is doing here to change lives, based on all of the empirical evidence and what you're hearing from God's word, would you do the wisest thing that you could possibly do? And surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Would you just say what Jethro said, now I know, now I know that God is who he said he is. That Jesus Christ is his son. Would you you admit that you're a sinner in need of all this? Would you believe that God sent his son uh, to give his life for you and was resurrected to, to new life? Defeating death, defeating sin. Would you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord? It's the wisest thing any of us ever do. And when we do that, that, that's a heart for Christ, a heart for God that's necessary in order for us to live wisely in every other aspect of our lives. It's the necessary starting point. In fact, I would offer you this verse from Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The reverence of God, the worship of God, the following of God, the devoting of your life to God, that's the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Would you give your life to Jesus Christ if you've not already done that? And, and those of you who are followers of Christ, would you even renew that before the Lord and recommit yourself? And God, I want your wisdom, and you are my Lord and Savior. How do I live by the wisdom of God? The wisdom, a uh, wisdom's foundation is having a heart, uh, having a heart for the things of Christ and following Him, and heart on the heels of that wisdom's question then. Do I see what the problem is? Uh, If I need wisdom for something, there has to be some kind of an acknowledgement that there's a problem. And in chapter 18, again, verse 13, uh, there is a problem. Uh, Jethro's just come to faith in God. He's been included in the community, and now as he uh, takes part in it, He begins to observe something that Moses is doing that he would just say, that's not a good thing. Verses 13 through 16, the next day, right after he gets saved, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Now what Jethro sees in his son-in-law is definitely a prophet. He's the leader of God's people. He is the one to whom the word of God has been given. There is no written word of God at this point. It's just what's coming down through the prophet Moses to the people. And as a prophet with a direct pipeline to God, uh, Moses and the people felt like he was the best one to bring his dis- all of their disputes to. After all, he's got this connection to God. He knows the Word of God. He'll have a word for us in the midst of our situation. Everybody felt like he was the best one to be adjudicating all of their issues. And it does sound like the right thing. He was closest to God. He knew the Word of God. He had been used powerfully by God. Why wouldn't each one of us, if we had such a person available to us, why wouldn't we go to that person? But the fact is, you begin to think a little more wisely about this, as Jethro was seeing it, in fact, that with the number of people in the nation, the system was not working. Jethro saw that and gave Moses... His advice, His best advice. Now, at the very least, if you're into interpreting the Bible, there's a very clear message here that I don't think you need to really have a degree in Bible or anything to understand that it's just a great idea to listen to your father-in-law. Amen, let's close in prayer. (laughs) If I deliver only one message here today, let it be be that one. Verse 17. What you're doing is not good. Someone from the outside coming in, seeing everything that's going on, says it's not good. You and the people will wear, certainly wear yourselves out For the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. And Moses wasn't seeing that very simple truth. Now please understand, this is not a sin issue. We're not uh, talking about necessarily taking wisdom to apply it to a sin issue. This is wisdom to go from doing things that are good maybe even not good but not sinful, but raising them to a level where they are better and even best. In many corporate settings, we talk about best practices, and should not we as the followers of Jesus Christ be more committed than anyone else to best practices? We want the wisdom of God in every area of our lives. So this isn't a sin issue, but could we agree it's not going in a good direction? It's not going in a good direction. Moses was sincere in his purpose, but the whole thing was flawed in its, in its execution. Moses was trying to do a good thing, but in a way that was ineffective, in a way that was unsustainable. It can't go on like this. And I'm sure that he knew that what he was doing wasn't getting the job done. The people were standing around. From morning till evening, and the next day it would be the same thing again, because not all the cases were heard the day before, and and another day went by, so there were new conflicts that were happening among this great throng of people. And so the work would never come to an end and nothing else would get done and not every person would be heard and people would begin to get frustrated. And so something that at this point is not a sin issue, can you see how it's even leading in that direction? And unless some wisdom is applied to this, again, it's not going in a good direction. Moses was a smart man, but listen, smarts weren't enough to solve the problem. He was working hard but he wasn't working smart. Now, this is where we come to a need to understand the difference between knowledge being smart and wisdom. And uh, I love this quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon, a great uh, preacher. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. That and alone is gold right there. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There's no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. All right, let me give you a very practical, I've used this before, I think, a very practical um, illustration of this, again, with another, another quote. Miles Kingdon said this, knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. Right? Right? Y'all understand that? Knowledge is, having, <laughs> knowledge is having the Bible in your hand. Knowledge, knowledge is opening it up to read it and filling your mind with more information about the Bible. I know this about the Bible. I know this about this story. Knowledge is sitting through another sermon, going to another study, taking a Bible degree, Taking courses. That's all knowledge. We're just filling our minds with things. But listen, you can have all of that and still be so foolish in your decisions. I could spend the rest of our time right now and not exhaust all the stories I have of people that I went to Bible college with and seminary with who got degrees, who got better marks than I got, who finished on the honor roll, who got 4.0 GPAs, who had it all going on and wrecked their marriages and washed out of ministry or never got there in the first place. Story after story after story of people who have more degrees and more accomplished in those degrees than I am. Who wrote better papers, who, who who were part of better discussions, who had greater potential, and who are not doing anything with it today because they were filled with knowledge and had no wisdom. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Wisdom is knowing how to use the knowledge that you've gained. So do I see what the problem is? Whatever it is for you. I have a feeling that each of us in this moment would be able to kind of look at our lives and it wouldn't take very long at all to say, you know, this is an area of my life that's not quite in sync. We kept raising our hand at the start of the message. I need wisdom for this. I need wisdom for this. And whatever it is for you, marriage, parenting, finances, Sorting out world events, knowing how you feel about things, how you react to unbelievers, how you make your way in this world that's increasingly hostile to those of us who believe the Bible. Whatever it is, whatever you need, direction, how your life is going to play out, some other relationship that you're having a challenge with, whatever it is, do I see what the problem actually is? Am I wise enough? And if I'm not, What's really great about this story is whether it's your father-in-law or mother-in-law or a friend or someone in your small group or you get counseling from someone or you seek out a pastor or an elder, whoever it is, but you're going to go and you're going to get someone who's kind of outside of it to look in and say, this is the issue. This is what needs to be corrected. Wisdom's question, do I see what the problem is? And that leads us to wisdom's answer. Will I seek a God-honoring solution? Most of us, we just want the easy way out, or, or we're passive about things, and we're willing to kind of bury those things and not deal with them and push them to the side, and as long as I'm not thinking about it, I'm okay. Please don't bring that up, and we live in this sense of denial about these things, but if we're willing to admit there's a problem, will I seek a God-honoring solution, which is not a denial, not deflection, but admitting that I need this God-honoring solution. So Jethro says to Moses now, this is uh, verse 19, now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God uh, be with you. Now there's no presumption here I don't think we should read into the obey me as being some kind of demand on him because he goes in the next phrase to say, this is just advice. And then he says, may God be with you. I, it's, this is essentially Jethro saying, whatever I'm going to say to you, I'm just submitting this to the Lord, and you should submit it to the Lord. And if it, if it passes the God filter, if it, if it conforms to his will and his way, then you should do this. There's no presumption here. He's careful to concede true wisdom to God alone, but he lays out his observations and recommendations based on what he saw. Again, partway through verse 19, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. So he's affirming the thing that's happening now. And you shall warn them about the statutes and law and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Keep teaching. You're the prophet. You're the one meeting with God. You're the one that understands the Word of God. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't stop. Maintain that role. You are uh, the one who's uniquely gifted to do that. Verse 21, More, moreover, look for able men from all the people, people who fear God who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. Now again, there's a threefold recommendation in what he's saying here. First is this Moses maintains his role as the leader, prophet, teacher of God's word. Still gonna have to have that role. It's going to alter just a little bit now in that, secondly, he's going to recruit out from among the people, not just um, leaders, but specific leaders who are spiritually qualified who are going to be able to learn from Moses as he teaches them so that they can then take the Word of God and begin teaching it out and applying it out to everyone else the recruiting of spiritually qualified men, and then third, the third part of the recommendation, creating a system of judging based on severity of cases and the delegating of responsibility for those judgments to others. These are the leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Now, this is much less about setting up a judicial system, and it's much more about the disseminating of God's Word. When we think about the judging, we see, as, we see it really in a reactive way. We have an issue here amongst two people, and we, and we want to judge that. And so we're starting down here with the need of a judgment, and the leader of tens might try, and the leader of fifties might try to solve it, and it's too big of an issue, so the leader of hundreds and the leader of thousands might try. And, the, and when that doesn't work, it's going to Moses. That's a judicial system where Moses himself is the Supreme Court. That's the reactive way of looking at this, but I have to tell you, it's much less about that and much more about the proactive disseminating of God's Word from Moses down. It starts with Moses, who teaches the leaders of thousands, who trains the leaders of hundreds, who train the leader of fifties, who train the leaders of tens, and the Word of God... From the Lord himself through his prophet is now disseminating and being talked about and lots more people teaching it in and amongst the entire nation of Israel. And so the word would be available and integrated into every home and into the life of every person. Moses would not be the sole arbitrator, but God through his word would be the sole arbitrator. No matter who was speaking it, who was teaching it, who among the people was making the judgment, God would be the sole arbitrator. And in fact, this is God's intention all the way along, really perfected in the church. But all the way back, we see a sense of what's going on. And I want you to look forward in chapter 19 now. We'll look at this in our next message. But chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Notice this now. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Not just a kingdom with priests. Not just some priests. See, the whole thing about a priest is this. A priest is a mediator between God and and man. He's the one who goes between, who prays the prayer, who, who, who intercedes on behalf of, who provides the way for you to be in a relationship with God. That's what a priest does. And God's intention with Israel, and certainly playing out in the church, is that it's a kingdom of priests. In other words, every one of us, as a true believer in Jesus Christ, a true follower of Christ, we are ourselves priests. Priests. We have no need of a mediator except the one who is high priest, Jesus Christ. He's the mediator between God and man. And so God's breaking it all down. He's saying to each one of them and he's saying to each one of us, we have access to God through his word. We have no need of anyone else to stand between. And a little history lesson here, the Protestant Reformation. How many people like history? Okay, the rest of you humor me. The Protestant Reformation was mostly about this. The Roman Catholic Church was dominating of the West, of the Western world. It was the church. And the Protestant Reformation really started um, in the 1300s. And then really got going in the 1500s with, you'll know, names like Martin Luther and John Calvin. But all the way back, the issue was really this. The common person's access to the Word of God. It all came down to that. Because the church had gotten to a place where only the priests could read the Bible The Bible wasn't even translated into the language of the people, that it was only in Latin and only those who were educated had access to the Word of God. And in fact, it was not even being taught any longer, that really it was just about the rituals in the church. And it made the people very vulnerable. So there was no non-clergy that had access to the Word of God, and then in 1382, a man by the name of John Wycliffe, you'll know that name, he took the risk to translate the Word of God into English, and it was a massive challenge, and he was opposed at every turn by both the religious leaders in the church and the political leaders in the land in England. He died of a stroke before they could really get to him, but after he died, his body was buried, and the church being so incensed by what he had done in translating the Scriptures into English, they exhumed his body, they burned his body at the stake, ground up the ashes, and scattered them in the Thames River so that there would be no memory of this man. The humiliation of his corpse was their way of getting some closure around the fact that he had provided the Word of God in the language of the commoner. If you fast forward about 140 years, the situation wasn't much better. And another Englishman by the name of William Tyndale, 1525, translated the Word of God into English. And it didn't go as well for Tyndale because he didn't get to die of natural causes. But again, the church put the pressure on and the politicians listened. And Tyndale was strangled and tied to a stake and burned at the stake. For translating, for one reason alone, he translated the word of God into the language of the people so that it would have access to it. That was 1525. And within the next few decades, really just five, six decades later, King James of England had commissioned the translation of the scriptures into English. And I'm holding right here, I think this is really one of the coolest gifts I've ever received. But this is a folio or a page from a 1613 edition. So the original King James was 1611. Two years later, there was a major revision. And this is a page from 2 Timothy. Uh, this is a page out of a, a 1613 King James Version Bible. And it's a privilege to own this. It was a wonderful gift from a friend. And um, The cost that many men had to pay for you and I to have the Word of God in our hands, in our language, in a form that you and I can understand. The cost was so high, but it's because people were committed to seeking a God-honoring solution to a problem. They sought the way of wisdom, not the way of safety or expediency. The God-honoring solution is always found in the Word of God and we have access to it. We've prioritized here at Harvest the unapologetic preaching of the authority of God's Word. Which means that we preach it verse by verse so that you can see the plain meaning of the text for yourself. It means that I'm never going to be the kind of preacher that moves from this verse to this verse to this verse, turn here, go there, come back here, look at this. We bounce all over the Bible, and then you think that I'm all so clever because I was able to string all that together, and I could never do that, you say. That's why I don't do that. I want to get the book of Exodus out I want to go verse by verse through it I want to see the entire story I want you to see the story and I want you to see that when you read the Bible you can see that too the Bible is accessible to every one of us that its meaning is plain to us that its application is not complicated and if you don't get that if you're leaving here confused then I'm not doing my job right But I do have so many of you say, I appreciate the clarity of God's word. I understand what it says. I know what to do with it the next day. And that's a value that we've inherited from Harvest in Chicago. And when you get all of this and you understand it and apply it, when you see that the wisdom is in the word of God and the clarity and simplicity of just seeking out the wisdom of the Lord, then, then... As it was true for Moses listening to his father-in-law, there, there are some benefits attached to this. And that's what we're all looking for. Tell me the benefit. What's the win? How can I move forward in my walk? How can I figure this problem out? Well, the benefits are pretty clear. Verse 22, again, we'll pick up there. He tells them to uh, recruit these men. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, any small matter they shall decide for themselves. Then notice this so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. You're going to have these leaders, they're going to carry it with you. That's a benefit right out of the gate. Verse 23 If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. That's a benefit. And all this people also will go to their place, they're going to go back home, in peace. Why? Because they're going to have a resolution to their problem as fast as they can possibly have it. So here's the benefits, this whole idea of it being better for you is you're going to be able to endure. He's saying this to Moses those who are in the position of judging, of leading, of teaching God's Word, of pastoring God's people, if you have any kind of leadership role, if you follow the wisdom of God, if you're rooted in the Word of God, I'm just telling you right now, it's going to be better for you. You're going to be able to endure. You're going to have more effective ministry. You're going to have a higher impact in people's lives. You're going to have a a greater satisfaction in yourself over the thing that you're doing you're gonna have greater longevity. The thing that you're doing, you're gonna be able to do it longer without burning out because you're delegating, you're passing on. Other people are carrying it with you. It's better for you. You'll be able to endure and then all these people will be able to go out to their place in peace. It's, it's better for the people. Needs are met. Closer relationships uh, with leaders. Uh, The needs are going to be met sooner, more effectively, and at the end of the day, people are going to be at peace. Hey, this was great. We got this resolved. We didn't have to wait forever. It got solved by our friend right over here who's a leader of tens. We didn't have to go very far to get it fixed. And I love what that means for us as the church because the way this plays out for us, and this is a passage that has formed the basis for Uh, The small group model that we use in our church that really is the heart of who we are as a church. And if you're in a small group, I'm hoping to bring some greater understanding of why you're in that small group. And if you're not in a small group, I hope that this is an argument for you to get in one. And to find that you could go to your place with greater peace. Knowing that you're cared for in a better way. So this isn't so much, again, as we look at this, about a judicial hierarchy or division of responsibilities, but it is helpful to us in thinking about care and counsel in the church and how this all plays out for us, how we help one another become better uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. As any church grows, it's really essential uh, for uh, the care, the primary care of the body to move from the pastors uh, into the hands of everyone in the church. We need a network of caregivers grouped according to tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands. And as we grow in our practice and our understanding of what biblical soul care is, really the small group ministry is the means by which we uh, become soul caregivers to one another. And so in our small groups, it's not hard to see how this plays out. The leaders of tens are the small group leaders in our church. The leaders of fifties are the small group coaches or what we currently call a flock leaders. The leaders of hundreds would be our elders and our pastors. And we don't yet have thousands, but we're getting awful close. And we do this because… To be the kind of church where pastors alone, especially this size of church, where pastors alone do all of the caregiving, to be that kind of a church means that you're going to have exhausted pastors and you're going to have people standing around all day and night waiting for their needs to be met. It's really the least effective way of being the church. We want the majority of care and counseling to happen in the context of the small groups. And this was just a couple of weeks ago. Mark and Judy are right here and they had kind of a thing going on in their life and there was some prayer getting around that. And, um, and uh, I talked to Mark about it. He came up to me and he was telling me about it. I said, oh, is there any way that I can help you? And just the pastoral thing in me and I want to offer and I want to make sure that they're cared for. Is there any way I can help you? And his answer was this, no. Our small group has it all covered. Is that not the best answer? Is that not, listen, would it be good for me to care for them? Sure it would be. That would be a good thing, but not the best thing. The best thing is that care happens with the people they're closest to and that their small group leader and their small group rallied around to care for them uh, during that time. That, to me, is Exodus 18. That, to me, is the wisdom of God in how we do a church uh, together. And if the situation is more complicated and the small group leader just goes, you know what, this is a bigger thing than we can handle. Uh, There's an issue going on or there's a care uh, thing that uh, needs to happen and we need some more people brought to bear on this, then we appeal to the flock leader or the coach and we say, we need a little help here. We get the leader of 50s. And maybe it goes beyond that and it's something that's just a little bit more severe, a little bit heavier to handle. And then we appeal to the elders and to the pastors. We're seeking to be 100% biblical in the way uh, that we lead the church so that we can all care uh, for one another. This is just one example. This is just the example in the text and how we're applying it here of how the wisdom of God is applied in a way that's beneficial uh, to us all. And so, wisdom's answer, will I seek a God-honoring solution? And finally this, wisdom's plea. Will I act on what I know to be good and right? Verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the peoples, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided for themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Moses just did it. He heard the council. He went, of course, that makes so, such perfect sense. Let's start doing that right away. But there's something really notable here that's not actually explicit in the verses that we just read. But it's that Moses doesn't push back at all. He doesn't argue the point. He doesn't kind of rear up and go, Jethro, who are you? You haven't even been with these people but a day. You've only known the Lord for less than 24 hours, and you think you can tell me, I've been leading these people out of Egypt. Don't you know what we came through? Don't you know how awesome of a leader I am? He could have been saying all of that, couldn't he? He had the credentials. He had the pipeline. Don't you think, Jethro, that if God wanted me to do it this way, he would have told me? I talked to him personally. Yet, listen, there's none of that. There's none of it. He doesn't push push back at all. He doesn't defend himself. One of the characteristics of wisdom is that you listen more than you talk. And Moses demonstrates wisdom here in listening. Really, what it's saying here is that Moses had no pride about this, but only humility. He was willing to hear the counsel and do it because he knew it was best. Very often our pride keeps us from experiencing something better because we won't ask for help. We won't seek counsel. We won't let somebody in. We won't be transparent and vulnerable. And so we stay in this place of foolishness and we don't take advantage of the wisdom and counsel that's available to us. To get to a better place. Acting on the wisdom offered uh, that that, that's offered to us takes humility. It takes a confession that I don't have all the answers. I'm not always seeing it straight. I'm not doing what I ought to be doing. And Moses acts on what Drethro told him. And the question that we're left with is will we act on what we've heard today? will we act on the word of God? Will we act on the teaching and counsel of others, the teaching and counsel that we know to be good and right? That's just the way of wisdom. And we need the way of wisdom. We need to be wise on this journey that we're calling, uh, we're bound for glory, we're, we're headed for the promised land, and along the way, so many things are going to happen to us where we need the wisdom of God. You know it to be true, don't you? I certainly know it to be true in my life. And so are you wise? Are you? Do you have a heart for the things of Christ? Are you able to see the problem? Are you able to find the God-honoring solution? And are you humble enough to act on what you know is good and right? Are you wise? Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the, um, the word as you've given it to us for Uh, the sections of your word that uh, teach us explicitly how we ought to be living our lives and go right after. We thank you for the narratives such as this one, that through story uh, tell us a manner of living. And Father, we, well, I would just guess that there's not one of us here that want to be foolish, but there's probably more than a few of us here who are by virtue of just not taking advantage of the wisdom that's available to us. And so, God, I would pray that each one of us would surrender to you again today, commit our lives to you afresh, and be so committed to the Word of God, the will of God, and the ways of God. Father, help us to walk each one of us in the way of wisdom, living each day according to what you've laid out for us, and not suffering under the weight of our own foolishness. Father, thank you for hearing this prayer and for giving us this time together. We cherish it truly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca. And remember, you are loved.